Section 2. Observations on Romans 39-24. If the scriptures represent all mankind as wicked in their first state, before they are made partakers of the benefits of Christ's redemption, then they are wicked by nature for doubtless men's first state is their native state, or that in which they come into the world. But the scriptures do thus represent all mankind. Before I mention particular texts to this purpose, I would observe, that it alters not the case, as to the argument in hand, whether we suppose these texts speak directly of infants, or only of such as understand something of their duty and state. For if all mankind, as soon as ever they are capable of reflecting, and knowing their own moral state, find themselves wicked, this proves that they are wicked by nature. Either born so, or born with an infallible disposition to be wicked as soon as possible, if there be any difference between these. And either of them will prove men to be born exceedingly depraved. I have before proved, that a native propensity to sin certainly follows from many things said of mankind in the scripture. But what I intend now, is to prove by direct scripture testimony, that all mankind, in their first state, are really of a wicked character. To this purpose, exceeding full, express, and abundant is that passage of the Apostle, in Romans 3.9-24, which I shall set down at large, distinguishing the universal terms which are here so often repeated, by a distinct character. The Apostle having in the first chapter Romans 1.16-17 laid down his proposition, that none can be saved in any other way than through the righteousness of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, he proceeds to prove this point, by showing particularly that all are in themselves wicked, and without any righteousness of their own. First, he insists on the wickedness of the Gentiles, in the first chapter. Next, on the wickedness of the Jews, in the second chapter. And then, in this place, he comes to sum up the matter, and draw the conclusion in the words following, What then, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law, is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Here the thing which I would prove. Namely, that mankind in their first state, before they are interested in the benefits of Christ's redemption, are universally wicked, is declared with the utmost possible fullness and precision. So that if here this matter be not set forth plainly, expressly, and fully, it must be because no words can do it, and it is not in the power of language, or any manner of terms and phrases, however contrived and heaped up one upon another, determinately to signify any such thing. Dr. T. to take off the force of the whole, would have us to understand p. 104-107. That these passages quoted from the Psalms, and other parts of the Old Testament, do not speak of all mankind, nor of all the Jews. But only of them of whom they were true. He observes, there were many that were innocent and righteous. Though there were also many, a strong party, that were wicked, corrupt, etc of whom these texts were to be understood. Concerning which I would observe the following things. 1. According to this, the universality of the terms in these places, which the Apostle cites from the Old Testament, 
to prove that all the world, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, is nothing to his purpose. The Apostle uses universal terms in his proposition, and in his conclusion, fatalier under sin, that every mouth is stopped, all the world guilty, dash that by the deeds of the law no flesh can be justified. And he chooses out a number of universal sayings or clauses out of the Old Testament, to confirm this universality. As, there is none righteous. No, not one they are all gone out of the way. There is none that understandeth, etc., but yet the universal terms found in them have no reference to any such universality, either in the collective, or personal sense. No universality of the nations of the world, or of particular persons in those nations, or in any one nation in the world but only of those of whom they are true. That is, there is none of them righteous, of whom it is true, that they are not righteous no, not one. There is none that understand, of whom it is true, that they understand not they are all gone out of the way, of whom it is true, that they are gone out of the way, etc., or these expressions are to be understood concerning that strong party in Israel, in David and Solomon's days, and in the prophet's days. They are to be understood of them universally. And what is that to the apostle's purpose? How does such an universality of wickedness, that all were wicked in Israel, who were wicked? Or, that there was a particular evil party, all of which were wicked, confirm that universality which the apostle would prove, namely, that all Jews and Gentiles, and the whole world, were wicked, and every mouth stopped, and that no flesh could be justified by their own righteousness. Here nothing can be said to abate the nonsense, but this, that the apostle would convince the Jews, that they were capable of being wicked, as well as other nations. And to prove it, he mentions some texts, which show that there was a wicked party in Israel a thousand years ago. And as to the universal terms which happened to be in these texts, the apostle had no respect to them. But as reciting them is as it were accidental, they happen to be in some texts which speak of an evil party in Israel, and the apostle cites them as they are, not because they are any more to his purpose for the universal terms, which happen to be in them. But let the reader look on the words of the apostle, and observe the violence of such a supposition. Particularly let the words of the ninth and tenth verses, and their connection, be observed. All are under sin as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. How plain it is, that the apostle cites that latter universal clause out of the fourteenth psalm, to confound the preceding universal words of his own proposition. And yet it will follow from what Dr. T supposes, that the universality of the terms in the last words, there is none righteous. No, not one hath no relation at all to that universality he speaks of in the preceding clause, to which they are joined, all are under sin and is no more a confirmation of it, than if the words were thus, there are some or there are many in Israel, that are not righteous. 2. To suppose, the apostles' design in citing these passages, was only to prove to the Jews, that of old there was a considerable number of their nation that were wicked men is to suppose him to have gone about to prove what none of the Jews denied, were made the least doubt of, even the Pharisees, the most self-righteous sect of them, who went furthest in glorying in the distinction of their nation from other nations, as a holy people, knew it, and owned it. They openly confessed that their forefathers killed the prophets, Matthew 23 29-31. And if the apostles' design had been only to refresh their memories, to put them in mind of the ancient wickedness of their nation, to lead to reflection on themselves as guilty of the like wickedness, as Stephen does, Acts 7 would need had he to go so far about to prove this, gathering of many sentences here and there which prove, that their scriptures speak of some as wicked men, and then to prove, that the wicked men spoken of must be Jews, by this argument, that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law or that whatsoever the books of the Old Testament says, it must be understood of that people who had the Old Testament? What need had the apostle of such an images as this, to prove to the Jews, that there had been many of their nation in past ages, which were wicked men? When the Old Testament was full of passages that asserted this expressly, not only of a strong party, but of the nation in general, how much more would it have been to such a purpose? to have put them in mind of the wickedness of the people in general in worshipping the golden calf. Of the unbelief, murmuring, 
and perverseness of the whole congregation in the wilderness, for forty years, as Stephen does. Which things he had no need to prove to be spoken of their nation, by any such indirect argument as this, whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. 3. It would have been impertinent to the Apostle's purpose, even as our author understands his purpose, for him to have gone about to convince the Jews, that there had been a strong party of bad men in the time of David and Solomon, and the prophets, for Dr. T. supposes, that Apostle's aim is to prove the great corruption of both Jews and Gentiles when Christ came into the world. 287. In order the more fully to evade the clear and abundant testimonies to the doctrine of original sin, contained in this part of the Holy Scripture, our author says, the Apostle is here speaking of bodies of people, of Jews and Gentiles in a collective sense, as two great bodies into which mankind are divided. Speaking of them in their collective capacity, and not with respect to particular persons. That the Apostle's design is to prove, that neither of these two great bodies, in their collective sense, can be justified by law, because both were corrupt. And so that no more is implied, than that the generality of both were wicked. 288 On this I observe. 1. That this supposed sense disagrees extremely with the terms and language which the Apostle here makes use of for according to this, we must understand, either. First, that the Apostle means no universality at all, but only the far greater part. But if the words which the Apostle uses, do not most fully and determinately signify an universality, no words ever used in the Bible are sufficient to do it. I might challenge any man to produce any one paragraph in the scripture, from the beginning to the end, where there is such a repetition and accumulation of terms, so strongly, and emphatically, and carefully, to express the most perfect and absolute universality, or any place to be compared to it. What instance is there in the scripture, or indeed in any other writing, when the meaning is only the much greater part, where this meaning is signified in such a manner, they are all, dash they are all, dash they are all, together, dash everyone, dash all the world, joined to multiplied negative terms, to show the universality to be without exception, saying, there is no flesh, dash there is none, dash there is none, dash there is none, dash there is none four times over. Besides the addition of no, not one, dash no, not one, dash once and again. Or, secondly, if any universality at all be allowed, it is only of the collective bodies spoken of in these collective bodies but two, as Dr. T. reckons them, namely, the Jewish nation, and the Gentile world. Supposing the apostle is here representing each of these parts of mankind as being wicked, but is this the way of men using language, when speaking of but two things, to express themselves in such universal terms, when they mean no more than that the thing affirmed is predicated of both of them? If a man speaking of his two feet is both lame, should say, All my feet are lame, they are all lame, all together are become weak, none of my feet are strong, none of them are sound, no, not one. Would not he be thought to be lame in his understanding, as well as his feet? When the Apostle says, that every mouth may be stopped, must we suppose, that he speaks only of these two great collective bodies, figuratively ascribing to each of them a mouth, and means that these two mouths are stopped? Besides, according to our author's own interpretation, the universal terms used in these texts, cited from the Old Testament, have no respect to those two great collective bodies, nor indeed to either of them but to some in Israel, a particular disaffected party in that one nation, which was made up of wicked men. So that his interpretation is every way absurd and inconsistent. 2. If the apostle is speaking only of the wickedness or guilt of great collective bodies, then it will follow, that also the justification he here treats of, is no other than the justification of such collective bodies. 4. They are the same of whom he speaks as guilty and wicked and who cannot be justified by the works of the law, by reason of their being wicked. Otherwise his argument is wholly disannulled. If the guilt he speaks of be only of collective bodies, then what he argues from that guilt, must be only, that collective bodies cannot be justified by the works of the law, having no respect to the justification of particular persons. And indeed this is Dr. T. S. declared opinion. 
he supposes the apostle here, and in other parts of this epistle, is speaking of men's justification considered only as in their collective capacity. 289 But the contrary is most manifest. The 26th and 28th verses of this third chapter, cannot, without the utmost violence, be understood otherwise than of the justification of particular persons. That he might be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law. So in Romans 4 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And what the Apostle cites in the 6th, 7th, and 8th verses from the book of Psalms, evidently shows, that he is speaking of the justification of particular persons. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. David says these things in Psalm 32, with a special respect to his own particular case. They're expressing the great distress he was in, while under a sense of personal sin and guilt, and the great joy he had when God forgave him. And what can be plainer, than in the paragraph we have been upon Romans 3.20? It is the justification of particular persons of which the Apostle speaks. Therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. He refers to Psalm 143.2. Enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. Here the psalmist is not speaking of the justification of a nation, as a collective body, or of one of the two parts of the world, but of a particular man. And it is further manifest, that the apostle is here speaking of personal justification, inasmuch as this place is evidently parallel with Galatians 3.10.11. For as many as are of the works of the law, are under the curse for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the works of the law, is evident. 4. The just shall live by faith. It is plain, that this place is parallel with that in Romans 3, not only as the thing asserted is the same, and the argument by which it is proved, that all are guilty, and exposed to condemnation by the law. But the same saying of the Old Testament is cited Galatians 2.16. Many other things demonstrate that the Apostle is speaking of the same justification in both places, which I omit for brevity's sake. And besides all these things, our author's interpretation makes the Apostle's argument wholly void another way. The Apostle is speaking of a certain subject which cannot be justified by the works of the law. And his argument is that the same subject is guilty and is condemned by the law. If he means, that one subject, suppose a collective body or bodies, cannot be justified by the law, because another subject, another collective body, is condemned by the law, it is plain, the argument would be quite vain and impertinent. Yet thus the argument must stand according to Dr. T. S. Interpretation. The collective bodies which he supposes are spoken of as wicked, and condemned by the law considered as in their collective capacity, are those two, the Jewish nation, and the heathen world but the collective body which he supposes the apostle speaks of as justified without the deeds of the law, is neither of these, but the Christian church, or body of believers, which is a new collective body, a new creature, and a new man according to our author's understanding of such phrases, which never had any existence before it was justified, and therefore never was wicked or condemned unless it was with regard to the individuals of which it was constituted. And it does not appear, according to our author's scheme, that these individuals had before been generally wicked. For according to him, there was a number both among the Jews and Gentiles, that were righteous before. And how does it appear, but that the comparatively few Jews and Gentiles, of which this new created collective body was constituted, were chiefly of the best of each. So that in every view, this author's way of explaining the passage appears vain and absurd. And so clearly and fully has the Apostle expressed himself, that it is doubtless impossible to invent any other sense to put upon his words, than that which will imply, that all mankind, even every individual of the whole race, but their Redeemer himself, are in their first original state corrupt and wicked. Before I leave this passage Romans 3 9-24. 
it may be proper to observe that it not only is a most clear and full testimony to the native depravity of mankind, but also plainly declares that natural depravity to be total and exceeding great. It is the Apostle's manifest design in these citations from the Old Testament, to show these three things. 1. That all mankind are by nature corrupt. 2. That everyone is altogether corrupt, and, as it were, depraved in every part. 3. That they are in every part corrupt in an exceeding degree. With respect to the second of these, it is plain the Apostle puts together those particular passages of the Old Testament, wherein most of those members of the body are mentioned, that are the soul's chief instruments or organs of external action. The hands implicitly in those expressions, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doth good. 290 The throat, tongue, lips, and mouth, the organs of speech, in those words. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 291 The feet in those words, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. These things together signify, that man is as it were all over corrupt in every part. And not only is the total corruption thus intimated, by enumerating the several parts, but also by denying all good. Any true understanding or spiritual knowledge, any virtuous action, or so much as a truly virtuous desire, or seeking after God 292 There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doth good. The way of peace have they not known. And in general, by denying all true piety or religion in men in their first state, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The expressions also are evidently chosen to denote a most extreme and desperate wickedness of heart. An exceeding depravity is ascribed to every part to the throat, the scent of an open sepulchre, to the tongue and lips, deceit, and the poison of asps, to the mouth, cursing and bitterness of their feet it is said, they are swift to shed blood and with regard to the whole man, it is said, destruction and misery are in their ways. The representation is very strong of each of these things, namely, that all mankind are corrupt. That everyone is holy and altogether corrupt. And also extremely and desperately corrupt. And it is plain, it is not accidental, that we have here such a collection of such strong expressions, so emphatically signifying these things. But that they are chosen of the Apostle on design, as being directly and fully to his purpose which purpose appears in all his discourse in the whole of this chapter, and indeed from the beginning of the epistle. Section 3. Observations on Romans 5-6-10 and Ephesians 2-3 with the context, and Romans 7. Another passage of this apostle, which shows that all who are made partakers of the benefits of Christ's redemption, are in their first state wicked, desperately wicked, is Romans 5-6-10. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commanded his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Here all for whom Christ died, and who are saved by him, are spoken of as being in their first state sinners, ungodly, enemies to God, exposed to divine wrath, and without strength, without ability to help themselves, or deliver their souls from this miserable state. Dr. T says, the apostle here speaks of the Gentiles only in their heathen state, in contradistinction to the Jews and that not of particular persons among the heathen Gentiles, or as to the state they were in personally, but only of the Gentiles collectively taken, or of the miserable state of that great collective body, the heathen world and that these appellation, sinners, ungodly, enemies, etc., were names by which the apostles in their writings were wont to signify and distinguish the heathen world, in opposition to the Jews, and that in this sense these appellations are to be taken in their epistles, and in this place in particular. 293 And it is observable, 
that this way of interpreting these phrases in the apostolic writings is become fashionable with many late writers, whereby they not only evade several clear testimonies to the doctrine of original sin, but make void great part of the New Testament, on which account it deserves the more particular consideration. It is allowed to have been long common and customary among the Jews, especially the sect of the Pharisees, in their pride, and confidence in their privileges as the peculiar people of God, to exalt themselves exceedingly above other nations, and greatly to despise the Gentiles, calling them by such names as sinners, enemies, dogs, etc., themselves they accounted, in general accepting the publicans, and the notoriously profligate, as the friends, the special favorites and children, of God. Because they were the children of Abraham, were circumcised, and had the law of Moses, as their peculiar privilege, and as a wall of partition between them and the Gentiles. But it is very remarkable, that a Christian divine, who has studied the New Testament, and the Epistle to the Romans in particular, so diligently as drive he has done, should so strongly imagine that the apostles of Jesus Christ countenance and cherish these self-exalting, uncharitable dispositions and notions of the Jews which gave rise to such a custom, so far as to fall in with that custom and adopt that language of their pride and contempt, and especially that the Apostle Paul should do it. It is a most unreasonable imagination on many accounts. 1. The whole gospel dispensation is calculated entirely to overthrow and abolish everything to which the self-distinguishing, self-exalting language of the Jews was owing. It was calculated wholly to exclude such boasting, and to destroy the pride and self-righteousness which were the causes of it. It was calculated to abolish the enmity, and break down the partition wall between Jews and Gentiles, and of twain, to make one new man, so making peace to destroy all dispositions in nations and particular persons to despise one another, or to say one to another, Stand by thyself, come not near to me. For I am holier than thou. And to establish the contrary principles of humility, mutual esteem, honor and love, and universal union in the most firm and perfect manner. 2. Christ, when on earth, set himself, through the whole course of his ministry, to militate against this pharisaical spirit, practice, and language of the Jews, by which they showed so much contempt of the Gentiles, publicans, and such as were openly lewd and vicious, and thus exalted themselves above them, calling them sinners and enemies, and themselves holy, and God's children not allowing the Gentile to be their neighbor, etc., he condemned the Pharisees for not esteeming themselves sinners, as well as the publicans. Trusting in themselves that they were righteous, and despising others, he militated against these things in his own treatment of some Gentiles, publicans, and others, whom they called sinners, and in what he said on those occasions. 294. He opposed these notions and manners of the Jews in his parables, 295 and in his instructions to his disciples how to treat the unbelieving Jews. 296 and in what he says to Nicodemus about the necessity of a new birth, even for the Jews, as well as the unclean Gentiles with regard to their proselytism, which some of the Jews looked upon as a new birth. And in opposition to their notions on their being the children of God, because the children of Abraham, but the Gentiles by nature sinners and children of wrath he tells them that even they were children of the devil. 297. 3. Though we should suppose the apostles not to have been thoroughly brought off from such notions, manners, and language of the Jews, till after Christ's ascension, yet after the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, or at least, after the calling of the Gentiles, begun in the conversion of Cornelius, they were fully instructed in this matter and effectually taught no longer to call the Gentiles unclean, as a note of distinction from the Jews, Acts 10.28, which was before any of the apostolic epistles were written. 4. Of all the apostles, none were more perfectly instructed in this matter, than Paul, and none so abundant in instructing others in it, as this great apostle of the Gentiles. None of the apostles had so much occasion to exert themselves against the forementioned notions and language of the Jews, in opposition to Jewish teachers and Judaizing Christians who strove to keep up the separation wall between Jews and Gentiles, and to exalt the former, and set it not the latter. 5. This apostle, 
in his epistle to the Romans, above all his other writings, exerts himself in the most elaborate manner, and with his utmost skill and power, to bring the Jewish Christians off from everything of this kind. He endeavors by all means that there might no longer be in them any remains of these old notions, in which they had been educated, of such a great distinction between Jews and Gentiles, as were expressed in the names they used to distinguish them by. The Jews, holy children of Abraham, friends and children of God. But the Gentiles, sinners, unclean, enemies, and the like. He makes it almost his whole business, from the beginning of the epistle, Romans 5, 6 etc., to convince them that there was no ground for any such distinction, and to prove that in common, both Jews and Gentiles, all were desperately wicked, and none righteous, no not one. He tells them, Romans 3, 9 that the Jews were by no means better than the Gentiles. And in what follows in that chapter that there was no difference between Jews and Gentiles. And represents all as without strength, or any sufficiency of their own in the affair of justification and redemption. And in the continuation of the same discourse, in Romans 4, he teaches that all who were justified by Christ, were in themselves ungodly. And that being the children of Abraham was not peculiar to the Jews. In Romans 5 still in continuation of the same discourse, on the same subject and argument of justification through Christ, and by faith in Him, he speaks of Christ dying for the ungodly and sinners, and those who were without strength or sufficiency for their own salvation, as he had done all along before. But now, it seems, the apostle by sinners and ungodly, must not be understood according as he used these words before but must be supposed to mean only the Gentiles as distinguished from the Jews. Adopting the language of those self-righteous, self-exalting, disdainful Judaizing teachers, whom he was with all his might opposing countenancing the very same thing in them, which he had been from the beginning of the epistle discountenancing, and endeavoring to discourage, and utterly to abolish, with all his art and strength. One reason why the Jews looked on themselves better than the Gentiles, and called themselves holy, and the Gentiles sinners, was, that they had the law of Moses. They made their boast of the law. But the Apostle shows them, that this was so far from making them better, that it condemned them, and was an occasion of their being sinners, in a higher degree, and more aggravated manner, and more effectually and dreadfully dead in sin. 298. It cannot be justly objected here, that this Apostle did, in fact, use this language and call the Gentiles sinners, in contradistinction to the Jews, in what he said to Peter, Galatians 2:15, 16. We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It is true, that the Apostle here refers to this distinction, as what was usually made by the self-righteous Jews, between themselves and the Gentiles but not in such a manner as to adopt, or favor it. But on the contrary, so as plainly to show his disapprobation of it. Q.D. Though we were born Jews, and by nature are of that people which are wont to make their boast of the law, expecting to be justified by it, and trust in themselves that they are righteous, despising others, calling the Gentiles sinners, in distinction from themselves. Yet we being now instructed in the gospel of Christ, know better. We now know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, that we are all justified only by faith in Christ, in whom there is no difference, no distinction of Greek or Gentile, and Jew, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And this is the very thing he there speaks of, which he blamed Peter for. That by his withdrawing and separating himself from the Gentiles, refusing to eat with them, etc., he had countenanced this self-exalting, self-distinguishing, separating spirit and custom of the Jews, whereby they treated the Gentiles, as in a distinguishing manner sinners and unclean, and not fit to come near them who were a holy people. 6. The very words of the Apostle in this place, show plainly, that he uses the term sinners, not as signifying Gentiles, in opposition to Jews, but as denoting the morally evil, in opposition to such as are righteous or good. This latter distinction between sinners and righteous is here expressed in plain terms. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us, 
in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 299 by righteous men are doubtless meant the same that are meant by such a phrase, throughout this apostle's writings, throughout the New Testament, and throughout the Bible. Will anyone pretend, that by the righteous man, for whom men would scarcely die, and by the good man, for whom perhaps some might even dare to die, is meant a Jew? Dr. T himself does not explain it so, in his exposition of this epistle, and therefore is not very consistent with himself, in supposing, that in the other part of the distinction the apostle means Gentiles, as distinguished from the Jews. The apostle himself had been laboring abundantly, in the preceding part of the epistle, to prove, that the Jews were sinners in opposition to righteous. That all had sinned, that all were under sin, and therefore could not be justified, could not be accepted as righteous, by their own righteousness. 7. Another thing which makes it evident that the apostle, when he speaks in this place of the sinners and enemies for whom Christ died, does not mean only the Gentiles, is, that he includes himself among them, saying, while we were sinners, and when we were enemies. Our author from time to time says, the apostle, though he speaks only of the Gentiles in their heathen state, yet puts himself with them, because he was the apostle of the Gentiles. But this is very unreasonable. There is no more sense in it, than there would be in a father ranking himself among his children, when speaking to his children of the benefits they have by being begotten by himself. And saying, we children. Or in a physician ranking himself with his patients, when talking to them of their diseases and cure. Saying, we sick folks. Paul being the apostle of the Gentiles to save them from their heathenism, is so far from being a reason for him to reckon himself among the heathen, that on the contrary, it is the very thing that would render it in a peculiar manner unnatural and absurd for him so to do. Because, as the apostle of the Gentiles, he appears as their healer and deliverer from heathenism. And therefore in that capacity, in a peculiar manner, appears in his distinction from the heathen, and in opposition to the state of heathenism. For it is by the most opposite qualities only, that he is fitted to be an apostle of the heathen, and recover from heathenism. As the clear light of the sun is what makes it a proper restorative from darkness. And, therefore, the sun being spoken of as such a remedy, none would suppose to be a good reason why it should be ranked among dark things. Besides, the apostle, in this epistle, expressly ranks himself with the Jews when he speaks of them as distinguished from the Gentiles. As in Romans 3 9. What then? Are we better than they? That is, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? It cannot justly be alleged in opposition to this, that the Apostle Peter puts himself with the heathen, 1 Peter 4 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, for the Apostle Peter who by the way was not an Apostle of the Gentiles here does not speak of himself as one of the heathen, but as one of the Church of Christ in general, made up of those who had been Jews, proselytes, and heathens, who are now all one body, of which body he was a member. It is this society, therefore, and not the Gentiles, that he refers to in the pronoun U.S. He is speaking of the wickedness that the members of this body or society had lived in before their conversion. Not that every member had lived in all those vices here mentioned, but some in one, others in another. Very parallel is the passage with that of the Apostle Paul to Titus. Titus 3 3. For we ourselves also that is, we of the Christian church were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, some one lust and pleasure, others another, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another, etc. There is nothing in this, but what is very natural that the Apostle, speaking to the Christian church, and of that church, confessing its former sins, should speak of himself as one of that society, and yet mention some sins that he personally had not been guilty of, and among others, heathenish idolatry, is quite a different thing from what it would have been for the Apostle, expressly distinguishing those of the Christians, which had been heathen, from those which had been Jews, to have ranked himself with the former though he was truly of the latter. If a minister in some congregation in England, speaking in a sermon of the sense of the nation, being himself of the nation should say, 
we have greatly corrupted ourselves, and provoked God by our deism, blasphemy, profane swearing, lasciviousness, venality, etc., speaking in the first person plural, though he himself never had been a deist, and perhaps none of his hearers, and they might also have been generally free from other sins he mentioned. Yet there would be nothing unnatural in his thus expressing himself. But it would be quite a different thing, if one part of the British dominions, suppose our king's American dominions, had universally apostatized from Christianity to deism, and had long been in such a state, and if one who had been born and brought up in England among Christians, the country being universally Christian, should be sent among them to show them the folly and great evil of deism, and convert them to Christianity. And this missionary, when making a distinction between English Christians, and these deists, should rank himself with the latter, and say, W.E. American deists, W.E. foolish blind infidels, etc., this indeed would be very unnatural and absurd. Another passage of the Apostle, to the like purpose with that which we have been considering in the fifth of Romans, is that in Ephesians 2-3, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. This remains a plain testimony to the doctrine of original sin, as held by those who used to be called Orthodox Christians, after all the pains and are choose to torture and pervert it. This doctrine is here not only plainly and fully taught, but abundantly so, if we take the words with the context. Where Christians are once and again represented as being, in their first state, dead in sin, and as quickened and raised up from such a state of death, in a most marvelous display of free rich grace and love, and exceeding greatness of God's power, etc., with respect to those words not English we were by nature children of wrath, Dr. T. says, pages 112 to 114. The Apostle means no more by this, than truly or really children of wrath. Using a metaphorical expression, borrowed from the word that is used to signify a true and genuine child of a family, in distinction from one that is a child only by adoption, in which it is owned, that the proper sense of the phrase is, being a child by nature, in the same sense as a child by birth or natural generation. But only he supposes, that here the word is used metaphorically. The instance he produces is parallel, to confirm his supposed metaphorical sense of the phrase, as meaning only truly, really, or properly children of wrath, namely, the Apostle Paul's calling Timothy his own son in faith, not English is so far from confirming his sense, that it is rather directly against it. For doubtless the Apostle uses the word here not English in its original signification, meaning his begotten son. Not English being the adjective from not English, offspring, or the verb, not English to beget. As much as to say, Timothy my begotten son in the faith. For as there are two ways of being begotten, one natural, and the other spiritual. The first generation, and regeneration. So the apostle expressly signifies which of these he means in this place, Timothy my begotten son in the faith, in the same manner as he says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4.15. In Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. To say, the apostle uses the word, not English, in Ephesians 2.3 only as signifying real, true, and proper is a most arbitrary interpretation, having nothing to warn it in the whole Bible. The word not English is nowhere used in this sense in the New Testament. 300. Another thing which our author alleges to evade the force of this, is, that the word rendered nature, sometimes signifies habit contracted by custom, or an acquired nature. But this is not its proper meaning. And it is plain, the word in its common use, in the New Testament, signifies what we properly express in English by the word nature. There is but one place where there can be the least pretext for supposing it to be used otherwise. And that is 1 Corinthians 11:14. Doth not even nature itself teach you, that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? And even here there is, I think, no manner of reason for understanding nature otherwise than in the proper sense the emphasis used not English nature itself, shows that the Apostle does not mean custom, but nature in the proper sense. It is true, it was long custom which made having the head covered a token of subjection, and a feminine appearance. As it is custom that makes any outward action or word a sign or signification of anything. But nature itself, nature in its proper sense, teaches, 
that it is a shame for a man to appear with the established signs of the female sex, and with significations of inferiority, etc., as nature itself shows it to be a shame for a father to bow down or kneel to his own child or servant, or for men to bow to an idol, because bowing down is by custom an established token or sign of subjection and submission. Such a sight therefore would be unnatural, shocking to a man's very nature. So nature would teach, that it is a shame for a woman to use such and such lascivious words or gestures, though it be custom that establishes the unclean signification of those gestures and sounds. It is particularly unnatural and unreasonable, to understand the phrase, not English in this place, any otherwise than in the proper sense, on the following accounts. 1. It may be observed, that both the words, not English and not English, in their original signification, have reference to birth or generation. So the word not English, from not English, which signifies to beget or bring forth young, or to bud forth, as a plant, that brings forth young buds and branches. And so the word not English comes from not English, which signifies to bring forth children. Dash 2. As though the apostle took care by the word used here, to signify what we are by birth, he changes the word he used before for children. In the preceding verse he used not English, speaking of the children of disobedience. But here not English, which is a word derived, as observed, from not English, to bring forth a child, and more properly signifies a begotten or born child. Dash 3. It is natural to suppose that the apostle here speaks in opposition to the pride of some, especially the Jews for the church in Ephesus was made up partly of Jews, as well as the church in Rome who exalted themselves in the privileges they had by birth, because they were born the children of Abraham, and were Jews by nature, not English, as the phrase is, Galatians 2.15. In opposition to this proud conceit, he teaches the Jews, that notwithstanding this they were by nature children of wrath, even as others, one e as well as the Gentiles, which the Jews had been taught to look upon as sinners, and out of favor with God by nature, and born children of wrath. Dash 4. It is more plain, that the Apostle uses the word nature in its proper sense here, because he sets what they were by nature in opposition to what they are by grace. In this verse, the Apostle shows what they are by nature, namely, children of wrath. And in the following verses he shows, how very different their state is by grace. Saying, Ephesians 2.5. By grace ye are saved. Repeating it again, Ephesians 2.8 by grace ye are saved. But if, by being children of wrath by nature, were men no more than only their being really and truly children of wrath, as Dr. T supposes, there would be no opposition in the signification of these phrases. For in this sense they were by nature in a state of salvation, as much as by nature children of wrath. For they were truly, really, and properly in a state of salvation. If we take these words with the context, the whole abundantly proves, that by nature we are totally corrupt, without any good thing in us. For if we allow the plain scope of the place, without attempting to hide it by doing extreme violence to the Apostle's words, the design here is strongly to establish this point. That what Christians have that is good in them, or in their state, is in no part of it naturally in themselves, or from themselves, but is wholly from divine grace, all the gift of God, and His workmanship the effect of his power, his free and wonderful love. None of our good works are primarily from ourselves, but with respect to them all, we are God's workmanship, created unto good works, as it were out of nothing. Not so much as faith itself, the first principle of good works in Christians, is of themselves, but that is the gift of God. Therefore the Apostle compares the work of God, informing Christians to true virtue and holiness, not only to a new creation, but a resurrection, or raising from the dead. Ephesians 2.1 You have he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And again, Ephesians 2.5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. In speaking of Christians being quickened with Christ, the Apostle has reference to what he had said before, in the latter part of the foregoing chapter of God manifesting the exceeding greatness of his power towards Christian converts in their conversion, agreeable to the operation of his mighty power, when he raised Christ from the dead so that it is plain by everything in this discourse, 
The apostle would signify, that by nature we have no goodness, but are as destitute of it as a dead corpse is of life. And that all goodness, all good works, and faith the principle of all, are perfectly the gift of God's grace, and the work of his great, almighty, and exceeding excellent power. I think, there can be need of nothing but reading the chapter, and minding what is read, to convince all who have common understanding, of this. Whatever any of the most subtle critics have done, or ever can do, to twist, rack, perplex, and pervert the words and phrases here used. Dr. T. Here again insists, that the Apostle speaks only of the Gentiles in their heathen state, when he speaks of those that were dead in sin, and by nature children of wrath. And that though he seems to include himself among those, saying, W.E. were by nature children of wrath, W.E. were dead in sins. Yet he only puts himself among them because he was the apostle of the Gentiles. The gross absurdity of this may appear from what was said before. But besides the things which have been already observed, there are some things which make it peculiarly unreasonable to understand it so here. It is true, the greater part of the church of Ephesus had been heathens, and therefore the apostle often has reference to their heathen state, in this epistle. But the words in Ephesians 2-3 plainly show, that he means himself and other Jews in distinction from the Gentiles. For the distinction is fully expressed. After he had told the Ephesians, who had been generally heathen, that they had been dead in sin, and had walked according to the course of this world, etc., ver. 1 and 2 he makes a distinction, and says, among whom we also have our conversation, etc., and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Here first he changes the person. Whereas, before he had spoken in the second person, ye were dead, dash ye in time past walked, etc., now he changes style, and uses the first person, in the most manifest distinction, among whom we also, that is, we Jews, as well as ye Gentiles not only changing the person, but adding a particle of distinction, also. Which would be nonsense, if he meant the same without distinction. And besides all this, more fully to express the distinction, the Apostle further adds a pronoun of distinction. We also, even as others, or we as well as others most evidently having respect to the notions, so generally entertained by the Jews, of their being much better than the Gentiles, in being Jews by nature, children of Abraham, and children of God. When they suppose the Gentiles to be utterly cast off, as born aliens, and by nature children of wrath in opposition to this, the Apostle says, we Jews, after all our glorying in our distinction, were by nature children of wrath, as well as the rest of the world. And a yet further evidence, that the Apostle here means to include the Jews, and even himself, is the universal term he uses, among whom also we all have our conversation, etc., though wickedness was supposed by the Jews to be the course of this world, as to the generality of mankind, yet they supposed themselves an exempt people, at least the Pharisees, and the devout observers of the law of Moses and traditions of the elders. Whatever might be thought of publicans and harlots. But in opposition to this, the apostle asserts, that they all were no better by nature than others, but were to be reckoned among the children of disobedience, and children of wrath. Besides, if the apostle chooses to put himself among the Gentiles, because he was the apostle of the Gentiles, I would ask, why does he not do so in the eleventh verse of the same chapter of Ephesians 11, where he speaks of the Gentile state expressly? Remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Why does he here make a distinction between the Gentiles and himself? Why did he not say, let us remember, that we being in time past Gentiles? And why does the same apostle, even universally, make the same distinction, speaking either in the second or third person? and never in the first, where he expressly speaks of the gentilism of those of whom he wrote, or of whom he speaks, with reference to their distinction from the Jews. So everywhere in this same epistle, as in Ephesians 1:12, 13, where the distinction is made just in the same manner as here, by the change of the person, and by the distinguishing particle, also that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, the first believers in Christ being of the Jews before the Gentiles were called, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 
and in all the following part of the second chapter, as Ephesians 2 11, 17, 19, 22 in which last verse the same distinguishing particle again is used. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. 301. Though I am far from thinking our author's exposition of the seventh chapter of Romans to be in any wise agreeable to the true sense of the Apostle, yet it is needless here to stand particularly to examine it. Because the doctrine of original sin may be argued not the less strongly, though we should allow the thing wherein he mainly differs from such as he opposes in his interpretation, namely, that the Apostle does not speak in his own name, or to represent the state of a true Christian, but is representing the state of the Jews under the law. For even on this supposition, the drift of the place will prove, that everyone who is under the law, and with equal reason every one of mankind, is carnal, sold under sin, in his first state, until delivered by Christ. For it is plain, that the Apostle's design is to show the insufficiency of the law to give life to anyone whatsoever. This appears by what he says when he comes to draw his conclusion, in the continuation of this discourse, Romans 8 3. 302 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son, etc., our author supposes what is here spoken of, namely, that the law cannot give life, because it is weak through the flesh, is true with respect to every one of mankind. 303 And when the Apostle gives this reason, in that it is weak through the flesh, it is plain, that by the flesh, which here he opposes to the Spirit, he means the same thing which in the preceding part of the same discourse, in the foregoing chapter, he had called by the name flesh, Romans 7 5, 14, 18 and the law of the members, Romans 7 23 and the body of death, Romans 7 24. This is what, through this chapter, he insists on as the grand hindrance why the law could not give life just as he does in his conclusion, Romans 8-3, which, in his last place, is given as a reason why the law cannot give life to any of mankind. And it being the same reason of the same thing, spoken of in the same discourse, in the former part of it, this last place being the conclusion, of which that former part is the premises, and inasmuch as the reason there given is being in the flesh, and being carnal, sold under sin therefore, taking the whole of the apostles' discourse, this is justly understood to be a reason why the law cannot give life to any of mankind. And consequently, that all mankind are in the flesh, and are carnal, sold under sin, and so remain till delivered by Christ and consequently, all mankind in their first original state are very sinful. Which was the thing to be proved. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. 
Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.